And we've been emphasizing a lot in previous talks that one of the things that God is very upset about is when he is regarded as common and not as holy. And our entire culture wants to minimize God down as common. Our entire culture wants to minimize Jesus as much as possible to make him look like a teacher or a prophet, but not divine, not the fullness of the Godhead who dwells in bodily form, not he who has no beginning and has no end, but diminish our vision of Jesus. At the same time, God is trying to get us to take off like a rocket. Now, you know, you see these little kids run around when they're playing and you know, you have a little kid that gets a Batman outfit or a, one of these flying superheroes, Superman outfit, and they run along, and the Lord just kind of showed me it's kind of like these little kids that run along, and they take one jump into the air and put their arms out and go, I'm flying! And well, we'd go, well, you're kind of pretending you're flying, but your entire takeoff to landing was less than a second there, you know. But to them, I was flying. But their vision is limited down to this, this is all that they can do. But we would say, well, we'll get you up in an airplane, show you something from whatever, 20,000 feet or something like this. Well, the Lord's trying to do that with us. We go around and talk about kind of a small picture of the Lord, and he's trying to let us blast off into places we haven't perceived. And we've got to let him have our mind. And we've got to let our mind, John, just as you were sharing, we've got to let our mind be in the Word of God, because the Word of God reveals God, and it shows God to us. And Jesus said that, that the Word pointed to Him. He said, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they that testify of me, and still you will not come to me that you might have life. And the Scriptures are a testimony of Jesus. They are a testimony of Jesus, and when you're in the Word, all of a sudden, you find revelation of Jesus, and you get those things in your mind rather than the 6 o'clock news, rather than the latest report, whether, rather than where the weather's going, rather than how is the economy doing, rather than what's the latest international clash. And we get in our hearts what, the, what is the Lord, and then we can walk through those things, and we have a vision that the world needs to see. It's amazing to me that God has chosen to use people. I used to say I was more amazed. Now it's more of a miracle that he uses people. If you'd asked me in the beginning, I think, Gary, I would be an advocate of using angels. I, I really like the idea of seeing a 10-foot angel with a 7-foot flaming sword. It's just very appealing to me. I personally would like to converse with Gabriel, who stands in the presence of the Father. I would like that, but I'm afraid that if I saw an angel, I would be like most everybody else and still be afraid of the glory that surrounds an angel. I'm afraid that's what would happen to me, and my concept of talking to an angel would be I'd be on my knees. I wouldn't be talking so much as being afraid, but the Lord chose to use us, and it's the greater miracle that he uses us. The Bible says that angels look at us to understand the will of the Father which is just amazing, and one day we will judge the angels. Well, how can we judge the angels? It's going to happen. Lots of things are going to happen that we don't see how the Lord's going to bring them about. So today, I want to talk somewhat on this, but very much 
dive into what is this mystery of growth in Jesus. Last week we shared, in the last couple weeks, we shared a lot about the victory that is in Jesus. That Jesus is victory over things the enemy brings up. And the enemy does show up. And John was talking, he wakes up in the middle of the night, and sometimes it's like the enemy's waiting at the foot of the bed going, wait till he wakes up. I've got three or four thoughts to put right in his mind. And I'll wake up, uh, I don't know, 4.30 or something in the morning. And when I wake up, my first thing is I have to figure out what day it is or what night it is. But I have to figure that out. That's my first thought. I have to figure that one out because Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, I have to go somewhere. Saturday, I go somewhere else. And Sunday, I go somewhere else. And all those have different sleep schedules. And at least on one day, I can sleep another half an hour, 45 minutes. You've got to figure that out. But I, I have found that the enemy will be there. The enemy will be there. And he, will, he'll not, he does not open up saying, my name is Satan. I'm here to steal, kill, and destroy and ruin your thoughts and happiness. He doesn't do that. Now, he might do that, but generally he doesn't do that. Generally, he comes in and goes, Ken, how are you going to handle the day? Look at all these things that have to happen. Look at what's got to come together. Well, there's six, eight, ten ways this could fail. And what are your plans B, C, D, and E if these things don't work out? How are you holding all things together? And those are the things that the enemy comes in with because he's trying to take us from being anchored in Christ to being anchored in ourselves. And if you'll notice, every one of those phrases is, how are you going to do these things? And it's very important to open up with the Scripture and say, it's not my strength. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not up to me to come up with the strength. It's up to me to be willing. You know, um, there's a difficult concept Tom, sometimes in Scripture for us to gather when, when Jesus said it is finished, when he says that he has provided the strength, and sometimes we go, well, I, don't, I know you've provided the strength, but I actually don't feel the strength right now. Have you ever been there? I hear the word, you say you've provided the strength, but you know something right now, I feel weak. And we tend to let our feelings kind of run the show. Uh, the scripture is very clear. You know, Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong. Not when I am weak, Jesus is strong. When I am weak, I'm strong. When you feel that weakness, he hasn't left you. And there's a scripture verse that says right there, when I am weak, I am strong. It's not your feelings. It's the faithfulness of Jesus in your life. That makes us strong not our feelings but his faithfulness so when we have that feeling of weakness i go oh, here's another feeling of weakness this is the uh, 53rd one since nine o'clock this morning sometimes you have days like that okay you're out there going well that's not working well this is not working last week we were doing something at the church and we had a i don't know what we're going to call that let's just call it a cold wet day and I was sitting next to Kathy, and there were a couple of times where I was leaning forward. I was kind of handling some money, doing something. And um, Bob was there. He was with the Godmobile. And there were two or three times that this little tent that was kind of protecting me from the rain just funneled a little stream of water 
so that when I leaned forward, it went right down the collar of my back into my back. And that's just like someone pouring a little ice water down your back. Well, that happens once. You kind of jump up and wiggle and everything. But the second or third time, you're going, well, we got to maneuver this. Of course, some smart person came along a little later and said, why don't you move the table forward a little more? That actually did the trick. But for a while there, I was getting this little thing splashing on me. Several of you were here. You know how this is. And you call out to the Lord and you go, what is going on? Why is this? Instead of us calling out so much to the Lord saying, what is going on and why is this? The Lord knows what's going on. He knows why is this. And he wants us to call out in praise and thanksgiving and say, Lord, let me walk through this like Jesus would walk through this. We're not going to complain about water running down the neck. I've got to, I can wash my neck. I did go home and take a hot bath, though, at the end of that thing. I want you to know to redo my body. But the Bible says that God is bigger and greater and higher. And we're stepping up into the Holy of Holies, and we haven't got a full idea of it. We can't just say, okay, God, I'm in the Holy of Holies. The first 10 minutes should be this. The next 10 minutes is this. The third 10 minutes is this. And by the way, I would like a glow like was on Moses' face. You know, Moses talked to you. He got that glow on his face. If I'm in the Holy of Holies, I want one of those. So when I come out, I can go up and, you know, talk to people and they can go, whoa, look at that glow on your face. So that's my agenda for the Holy of Holies. Every time we come to the place where we're giving God our agenda for what he needs to do, we only know him a little bit. We only know him a little bit. What God is saying is, come lay down before me, give yourself to me. I have the agenda, and it's better than you're thinking. And that's hard for us to step into. It is hard for the finite to accommodate the infinite, and he is infinite. It is hard for us who are mortal to be connected to the person who never has been created and will never stop being. And we need to open up and say, okay, Lord, I'm yours. Now, Jesus emphasized this, and this is why I call this talk the mystery of growth in Christ, because it's not something that just comes from an educational process and you have the 15 factors of growth in Christ. I've got it down. I move from one to two to three to four. I'm on seven. I've talked to you 10 minutes. You sound like you're on four. Um, I know a person who's made it to 11, and so you get to wear your badge if you go beyond 10. No, it's not like that at all. God is just so much better than that. The very fact that the imperfect can be used by God who is perfect testifies to his amazing ability because we're all imperfect. Even those, even those of us that have cried out to the Lord, we're always being pruned. It says in John 15, those that bear much fruit, what does he do? He prunes them so they bear more fruit. We're all being pruned. We're all being changed into his image. But Jesus, in, in John 14 through John 17, Jesus laid something out so much and so many times that he wanted us to understand that he wanted us to get a hold of the fact that there was to be a dwelling of Christ in us and us in Christ that superseded our understanding but was extremely important. Now remember in John 14 through 17, this is the last section of time that Jesus is talking before he goes to the cross. And to me, every Christian should know John 14, chapter 14, through John 17 so well that when Pastor Miguel gets up and talks on it, he cannot quote from those chapters without you knowing the verse. 
These are tremendously important chapters because he's sitting down with his disciples saying, I'm about to leave you. Let me give you the final thing I'm going to tell to you. And you just get four glorious chapters of it. And so he says, and at the end of it, he says, you know, I no longer call you servants because servants don't know what their master is doing. But now you know what I'm doing. So I don't call you servants any longer, but friends. So John 14, 20 and 21, Jesus says, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will disclose or reveal myself to him. So when I used to read the Bible, I would go, I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. That's too confusing. Let's go on. I couldn't put it together in my mind. But Jesus emphasizes this kind of dwelling in him, and him dwelling in us, and us being one with the Father, multiple times in these four chapters of the Bible. It is a big deal. There is to be a union that is beyond our natural understanding. Nonetheless, it exists. It is beyond our natural understanding, and it is very important to Jesus. Now, one of the things that bothers us is, you know, when we talk about natural ways, we think, well, I'm going to be a good Christian, I'm going to learn all these things in the Scripture, and maybe the last six months of my life, I might minister the way Jesus did. You know, maybe I'll, I'll make it there in the last six months. But Jesus says things that have to do with the Father being present with him that are hard for us to understand. And Jesus even says, the works that I do, I don't do these works. The Father is doing the works through me. And his best example of that is in John 15, where he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. And we have a pretty good idea that what is in the vine flows through the branches and produces the fruit. If you cut off the branch, it won't work. But it's in some sense, how does that branch abide in that vine? There's still a branch. You can look and see a branch, but the branch is abiding in the vine. So we have some idea of it, but we don't see it in fullness. It's not something our understanding can handle in fullness. It's bigger than our natural understanding. And then in John 14, 23, Jesus says again, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. So Jesus said, Both the Father and I will dwell within those who love us. And then in John 17, 11, he prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. In John 17, 11. Then John 17, 21. That they may all be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. And then in verse 22 and 23, he says... The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, 
that they may be perfected in unity. And in John 17, 26, I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love which you loved me may be in them and I in them. So when we listen to this, we go, okay, I hear him saying it over and over and over and over again. And it's very important when Jesus says something over and over and over again that we pay attention to it and we go, there's something about the Christian life where in a way that's hard to understand, I'm going to abide in the Father, the Father's going to abide in me, we're both going to abide in Jesus, Jesus is going to be abiding in the Father, Jesus is going to be abiding in me. We are one, the way Jesus and the Father were one. Now, it's a huge thing, then, in the Scripture to understand how it is that Christians grow. So this is a big deal because... Uh, we have a tendency to want to get things down into steps if we possibly can. And one good thing that we have done as Christians is we have written out a lot of things that talk about how we cannot overcome sin and how it's necessary that Jesus paid the price for sin and that Jesus broke the bondage of sin so that sin's grip on me is broken. So Jesus paid the price, the punishment for my sin, but Jesus also broke the power of sin, so sin cannot grab me and keep me in bondage. And that's what he meant in John 8, 26, when it says, For he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And Jesus breaks the power of sin. And we've talked about this. And it's very, very important. And so when we share with people, we say, You know, the way you're walking in the world, you're walking just given over to sin. I said this a few weeks ago. I'd like to repeat it. It says that the world dives into sin. Many Christians play with sin. Jesus hated sin and loved sinners. The world dives into sin. Unfortunately, many Christians play with sin, but Jesus hated sin and loved sinners. So we'll tell to somebody, listen, Sin is a deception. You're being tricked here. This very thing you think you control that will give you enjoyment in life, it actually has control over you. You have been taken in. Um, we had a picture in our laboratory. This isn't scripture, but this is a good picture. And it had a little fish swimming. It was swimming kind of left to right. And behind the little fish was a bigger fish with its mouth open. And behind that fish was a bigger fish still with its mouth open. And behind that fish was a bigger fish still with its mouth open. And still, one more time, a bigger fish with its mouth open behind the, those five in front of it. But the cute part of it was, on the left side was a giant fish ready to take them all in. Just like that. That's the frustration of sin. Sin is going to get you in bondage. It's bondage behind you. It's bondage around you and you're floating into bondage. You're just going to be captured by sin. Jesus breaks that bondage. So we tell people, you need to stop sinning and repent and turn to Jesus, and Jesus will rescue you. And this is absolutely true. And it's so important we see Jesus as our Savior, but Jesus doesn't rescue us one time when we're 17 and we walk down the aisle. He rescues us on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, on Thursday. He is a constant rescuer, and we're in constant need of being rescued. And so Jesus does save us from the power of sins. But then when we start talking about Christian growth, 
we switch gears and we go, well, that salvation that we received, that was by the grace of God and there wasn't works that I could do to earn that, but he freely did that for me. And, we are, and it's so important that we share that gospel crystal clear. But the enemy, once you become a Christian, tries to minimize the damage of you becoming a Christian. So um, if he was to take a look at Dick, he would go, Dick, you know, you became a Christian, your sins are forgiven. Basically, Dick, what you need to do is just try to hold on in the difficulties of life to the end and slide on into heaven. And, you know, Dick, it's going to take all the energy you've got just to hold on. Lord knows, look what you've got to do this week. So you just kind of basically hold on till the end and then slip into heaven. Because he knows he's lost Dick. He's not going to unsave Dick. But he doesn't want Dick moving to the fullness of the stature of Christ. And God plans for every one of us to grow to the fullness of the stature of Christ. And you and I both know when we're first saved, we are nowhere near the fullness of the stature of Christ. We are nowhere near there. But God plans to bring us up. But the enemy's plan is to stop us and minimize the damage. I can't have Dick Hall growing to the fullness of the stature of Christ. He's going to walk all over the world, being a tremendous light, being the salt of the earth, sharing with other people. He's going to do terrible damage. I have to minimize Jesus in Dick Hall's life, so I'm going to take his vision, and instead of his vision being on the unbelievable God, I'm going to bring his vision down to, thank God you're saved, hold on till the end, and slide on into heaven. And so he tries to drop our vision. But Jesus is saying just the opposite. Oh, I've just now got you in. This is where the really good stuff starts. Getting saved just wipes all the bad stuff out, so God can now put the good stuff in, which is himself. And we go, well, how does he do that? Remember, we talked about that. Jesus is the way who answers the how. He is the how. Jesus is the how. If you come to yourself in prayer and go, God, I don't know how that can be, he's going to come back and say, Jesus... No, no, no. I don't understand how this is going to work, Jesus. No, no, no. I need an explanation. I need five steps that give me reasonable assurance this is going to work out. Jesus. If your life is such that God has got to give you five steps, God's going to move you from five steps to abiding in his son. And it's just like Mary Lazarus. In the story of Lazarus, Mary comes up and goes, you know, Lord, if you had been here, I, I, I know he wouldn't have died, and I know he's going to come back to life in the resurrection from the dead, and I know this is going to happen, but he wouldn't have died if you had been here. And do you know what Jesus said? I am the resurrection. Well, my first read of that, Ken, was that was actually, you know, a little stiff to tell her that. She's hurting, and you just stand up and say, I am the resurrection. But Jesus wasn't insensitive. Jesus was telling her the fullness of truth. I am the resurrection. I am the way. All these things you're asking for, those things are in me. Ephesians 1.3, every blessing in the heavenly sphere is in Christ. Not dispensed by Christ, but in Christ. So when we come to growth, we have one really great situation that happened in Galatians. And in Galatians 3, 2 and 3, he is talking about, he says, for how is it that you began? You have begun in the Holy Spirit. 
Now are you going to reach perfection by the flesh? Now I don't want to be too hard on this, but that's exactly what I tried to do. I definitely had the Spirit of God come in me and rescue me from sin. But then once I became a Christian, the enemy came in and said, you've got to get these things going in your life to grow in Christ. And Paul addressed this right away. He said, don't you recognize that it was by the Spirit of God that you were rescued and you began by the Spirit? Are you going to continue now on in the flesh? And I used not to like to read words about in the flesh. That was confusing, and I didn't like that. But in the flesh is where you say, look at me, I did it. That's the easiest way to grab hold of the flesh. Look at me, I did it. And you see, Jesus not only made way for us to be rescued from sin, but he made way so that all the growth that moves us from a young Christian to the fullness of the stature of Christ comes from Jesus. So I want to read some of these verses. And, and I think it's a tremendous thing to grab hold of, but my, one of my favorite verses is Philippians 1.6. And Philippians 1.6 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He who began the good work will perfect it. Well, who began the good work in Dick? Jesus. Who is going to perfect it? The same person who began it, Jesus. And you say, well, that's really good. I think I'll just step away and say, Jesus, you just go do that. Well, Jesus does it, and he interacts with you in the process. And what he says of us is, what I want you to do is to make sure you're abiding in me. And that is your work. Your work is to be abiding in me, and I'm going to take care of all the rest of the stuff. And I mean everything, all the rest of knowledge, skills, ability, timing, going to Raceway at just the right time to pray for people, getting coffee at just the right thing, opening it. God takes care of all that. That's his job. Our job is to abide in him. Well, the place in the scripture that that's just dramatically brought out is in John 6, 29. And in John 6, 29, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were trying to trap Jesus. Now, they were doing this all the time. But what they wanted to do was to have a list of works, and surely they want to have a list of works that was a checkoff list. And they'd say, okay, if I've done all these, I'm done, and I'm holy. And so they said of him, what should we be doing that we might work the works of God? In John 6, 28, that was their question. What should we be doing that we might work the works of God? Now I want you to think about how you would answer that question. For much of my life, I would say, well, you know, the works of God, he lays them out. There's the Ten Commandments. There's kind of a summary of the Ten Commandments about loving the Lord with your whole heart. There's loving your neighbor as yourself. You've got to think about several other things. Don't forget about the sins of omission. Those usually caught me. Things you should do that you're not doing. You get all that kind of straight. That's kind of the list of the works of God. Now, this is what Jesus said. John 6, 29. This is what Jesus said. This is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. Well, my first reading of that was, well, I mean, that can't be the work. You see, there's a believing, and then you go out and do works to show people that you believe. That was the way I thought of it, but that's not the way Jesus sees it. Jesus says the work is that you believe on him whom he has sent. 
Now, the word, believe in the, the word believe in the Bible means to trust in. It doesn't just mean to intellectually acknowledge. Because demons intellectually acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ. Demons do. They say, for you are the Christ. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking that you trust in, that we abide in him. He said, that's our work. Our work is to trust and abide in him. And he's the one that makes the rest of that happen. So does that mean that we kind of wander around and go, oh, well, they have 32 things that need to be done to help these people that are underprivileged here, but I don't have to do that. See, all my work is over here is in abiding and believing. So I don't have to do that. That's not the way it works at all. The way it works is that when you abide in him, he transforms us so that the thing that we want to do is the thing that God desires that we do, and we naturally help people who need to be helped. We naturally love the Father. We naturally love other people and do works to help other people. Now, when we have got that in our life, then all the things that Jesus said make sense, that the walk of a Christian would be a walk of rest. Well, if you naturally desire to do the thing God wants you to do, that's when you are truly free. So Jesus knows just exactly what he's doing. And he says, if you'll get about the right work, and you'll get about abiding in me the way you're supposed to, the will of God will become your will. The thing that should be done will become the thing you want to do. Now, if I was to gather together, I don't know, six or the eight of the men here and said, well, you know, after lunch, I, I mean, after the talk, I would just like to take the men out. We're going to have a kind of a men's get-together over lunch, and we're all going to go to Longhorn Steakhouse. There's only one trick on this. I'm paying for it, and you have to eat a steak. Have you got it? I, I can't speak to all the women, but we're not going to have any difficulty with the men here. Christian, can you handle that? Christian can handle that, okay? You would say, well, the thing you're asking of me just so happens to coincide with the very thing I would love to do. So, yes, that's Jesus. That's what it means when we're set free. It says in Philippians 2.13 that God works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So he changes our will. So we desire to do what needs to be done. So Christians are about many good works. But instead of doing good works to prove they're Christians, they're doing good works because it naturally arises from them abiding in Jesus and Jesus abiding in them. So should they be happy people? They should be happy people. Christians should have joy. That's why it says in Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And Christians should have tremendous joy. But if we don't abide in Christ, then it all gets mucked up. And there are so many Christians who have been saved who are in bondage, now listen to this, who are in bondage to be better Christians, which they can't do. They cannot beat themselves into being better Christians. And I've shared this before, I'll share it again. After I became a Christian, I would listen to sermons on Christian virtues, 
And then I would note that I wasn't doing so good on those virtues. So I'd listen to a sermon on love, and I would go, well, I love people that love me, but loving your enemies? Uh, D minus. I am not doing good on loving my enemies. I'm not doing good at all. And then the sermon would say, well, do these three things and really try hard here. And I would sit there and go, well, if I'm doing these three things and really trying hard here, maybe that'll pick up love in my life. And Ken, I tried that over and over and over, and it was not picking up love in my life. And then they would give a sermon on peace. And then I would try to do the five things, surely, that would bring peace into your life. And it never brought peace into my life. And then, I, then they would say joy and say, Christians ought to be joyful. And Jim, if you look in the mirror, your muscles have sagged so bad, your natural expression is a frown. I think it's true, actually, my muscles have sagged so bad that that's true. But, but he said, how are you not joyful? And, you know, you're supposed to be a light, Jim. God meant for you to be 100 watts, and you're barely hitting two watts on a good day. Do you hear that? Who is that voice? That's the enemy. Remember, the enemy is the accuser of the brethren. Remember, he is the one who oppresses. And he oppresses. Every time you feel oppression, boy, get your discernment out. That's the enemy. God never oppresses. God always rescues. God always says, here's the problem, here's the rescue. That's God. The enemy goes, here's the problem, you're bad. That's the enemy. And you go, well, I can't really discern the enemy. What's his voice sound like? Does he sound like he's stealing, killing, and destroying? That's the enemy. Jesus called a woman in adultery, in the act, and said, I don't condemn you. Be rescued, don't sin anymore. That's Jesus. Jesus always rescues. Well, I could not get these Christian virtues. And then the next thing, the enemy comes in and says, don't tell people about this, because everybody that's a Christian's got this, and you just don't. You haven't got, they've got, they love their enemies, that's why they talk about it so much, but you don't. But don't talk about it. Do you see? Well, once I got around to talk about it, I found out a whole lot of people had that problem. Because you cannot beat Christian virtues in your life. Because all the blessings of God are hidden in Christ Jesus. Because every promise of God finds its yes and amen in Christ. And Jesus meant for us to abide in Him so that by abiding in Him we would experience things that people call Christian virtues because He is those things. The Bible says He was made peace unto us. It says in Romans 8 that the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. All of these things are in Christ. They're the blessings that are hidden in Christ. So if you want to have Christian virtues, go to the one who is all the Christian virtues. And then he just lays it out in Galatians, and he says, For the fruit of the Spirit of God is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. Those are things that are Spirit of God. In Galatians 4, 6, it says, The Spirit of the Son was put into us. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. This is this incredible uniting of God is one, but the Spirit of Jesus in us, the dwelling of Jesus in us, is the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the fruit of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us are all those great things. You cannot beat Christian virtues into your life. 
But nonetheless, the enemy does that all the time. And I know many of you have tried this same thing, and you don't think about it a lot because it's too discouraging, especially joy. Christians should be joyful. And you go, well, Gads, I'm not doing good on that one, so I'm just not going to think about that. Someday I'll be more joyful. When my kids get straightened out, that's when I'll be joyful. When I pay the mortgage off, then there's going to be some joy. We always have these things down the road. On your deathbed, the enemy is going to have something else for you to do before you experience joy. I'm telling you, that's what he does. He puts off every blessing of God. So now the revelation of Christ, if the revelation of Christ really is all these things, it's not these things just the way the world does it. Like we're in the middle of the uh, soccer postseason in whatever, the Atlanta, what, what are we, the Atlanta? United. I should know that. Anyway, we won Thursday night. Well, that's good. And you could be happy if you follow the Atlanta United. If you follow the Atlanta Falcons, you're going the other way. <laughs> Do you see? You're going, how about trying to win two games in the season? You know, this is rough. But this is what we do. We put joy on a level of circumstances. And God's talking about a joy that goes so much deeper, so much richer, because it's in the Christ. That you have to have a revelation of Jesus. And that's why he says in Ephesians 1, I pray that God will give you a revelation in the knowledge of him. Because you need a revelation. And people like, Helen walked in today, look at that testimony. You know, Stephen has a bad night sleeping. He needs coffee. You go by the raceway. Where, well, where are you going today? Are you going to work? No, I'm going to... How, how does God coordinate getting all those people there? How does he do that? He does that all the time. This is God's normal, but when we touch it, John, we go, look what God did! And God goes, I have 1,800 of those going on this hour within one mile from your church. This is what he's doing all the time. When we get to heaven, one of the things that's going to amaze us is the Bible says that Jesus holds the entire creation together. And he's going to let us see that, that all through this, this thing was going to naturally fall apart and Jesus held it together. The second law of thermodynamics says everything is basically degrading into disorder. But Jesus is going the other way and he's holding all things together. And we're going to see that this whole universe is held together by him. It is. It's a marvelous thing. Well, he holds together all this other stuff. That's his normal. But we touch a little bit of it and go, whoa, and then come back down and talk about it with everybody. And he's saying, how about instead of touching it, if you dive in? How about diving in? So that the natural thing to you would be that Jesus can do his works through us the same way the Father did his works through Jesus. Because that's what Jesus said. I'm sending them out the way you sent me out. And Jesus means to do his works through us, just as the Father did. Well, when I listen to that, I go, well, I can't make that happen. Well, when none of us can make that happen, he can make it happen. The work that he requires of us is that we abide in him. And you may say, well, that's very easy. That's not easy. You let the Holy Spirit come in your life, he will come right here and say, well, uh, Ellen, you have this nice pattern of taking a look at things and then saying, well, I'm going to worry about these three things. I'm going to ask you not to worry. I want you to take those worries and put them abiding in me. And the enemy will come to Ellen and go, if you give them over to Jesus, you're out of control. If you're out of control, who knows what he will do? Now that is the stupidest thing we can ever think. God is the one who knows what to do. God is the one who is faithful. He is the one we want at the steering wheel. 
the guy that started TBN, I can't remember the guy's name, and I should know it, but he got to the place where he, the Lord had literally thrown him on his back in his living room. And I like the stories where God throws somebody on their back physically. It's, I don't know, Bob, those are one, some of my favorite stories. But he threw him on his back, and he saw the ceiling. And on the ceiling, the Lord painted the United States and showed him dots all over the United States and said, you are going to make television stations in all these cities. And there wasn't one. There was no TBN. There was nothing. This was before anything started. And he was on his back, and the Lord showed him that. Well, the way I like to tell stories, surely, is if God does that, then tons of money flows in. It's all very smooth. You can see well into the future it's all going to work out. That's not the way it works at all. The Lord lets you walk with Him day by day, moment by moment, so you can see that He is faithful. And in this guy's life, what happened was very interesting because he got down to the Friday before the Monday that the first station was going to start in California. And he got a call and they said, whoa, whoa, there's another license fee. We have missed this one. And it's going to be 19000 some some amount of dollars, over 19000 And he looked and he said, he went out and he said he was driving. And he said, Lord, what more do you want of me? Have you ever prayed that prayer? Lord, what more? I am out. I am bone dry. I have given you every tear. I've given you everything. And now you ask more of me. Actually, he was saying, and now this thing is going to fail. Every single time we say the words, this is going to fail, what we really mean is, to the best of my vision, this is going to fail. Not the best of God's vision. And of course, we know the end of this story, and we know this guy's going to have all these stations and change tremendous things, but he didn't know that at that time. This is like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before the fiery furnace. We know the end of the story. They didn't know the end of the story. Okay, so he didn't know the end of the story, and he just called out to God, and he said, I don't have $10 to put in this. And you know how the Lord does this. He kind of floats something into your mind, and all of a sudden he realized he had a whole life insurance policy. He called up the man that kept the policy for him and said, what's the current value of my whole life insurance policy? And it was $19,000 in some amount, which was just over what he needed by like $10 or $20. Just a little bit over what he needed. He cashed his whole life insurance policy in and went and started TBN. And that's the way. But God asked of him every single thing he had, including his whole life insurance policy. You see that? Now, the world would look at that and go, wow, you took enormous risk. God would look at that and go, you placed everything in the surest hands you could. Do you see? And it's a difference in our heads. And while we think in the natural, we're thinking it's out of my control. And God goes, good, good. And we're going, no, 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 I like it in my control and for you to bless what I want to do. That's the system I like. And God said, well, we're going from that system. We're going to this system where I'm going to do works through you that you can't do. Uh, Helen was telling me that when they were in Malaysia, there are these places where the churches welcomed them, and then there was a time that Miguel went off to that place where they weren't welcome. What was that place? It started with a B. Brunei. And they went in there, and if you were caught preaching, then bad things would happen to you. And he went in just to pray for deliverance in the tremendous number of people in that place. No one's ever going to know about that. No, well, I'm telling you, but I mean, it, 
it's a totally thankless task. He was going into a high-risk situation. There wasn't open arms there to welcome him. He was going to do something that is unpleasant, but it was the call of the Lord, and the Lord was there. So he's trying to take our eyes from, instead of seeing rewards and control in circumstances, I want you to see reward and control in my hands. And that's why he says, if you, if you desire to please me, then that's where you should be. And, you know, often we talk about, well, I can't discern the Lord. I can't discern the Lord. Jesus said, if your heart is to do the will of the Father, you will know the teaching whether it is of God. If your heart is to do the will of the Father, if you desire to do the will of the Father, you will know the teaching. The most important point on discernment is making sure your heart desires to do the will of the Father. When your heart decides to do the will of the Father, somehow you can smell something that stinks. Somehow you can smell it. You don't know how discernment works, but you know that's not of God. That is not of God. But if our hearts don't desire to do the will of the Father, it's very hard for us to get discernment because we just use natural thinking. And natural thinking will not cut it. You will be taken down a road on natural thinking. So Jesus is saying then, the mystery of growth is that you do your works, which is to abide in me. That will involve you doing lots of Christian works. I want to emphasize again, Christians are going to be very active. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever your task, work heartily as serving the Lord and not men. We'll be doing lots of those things, but instead of streaming from duty to be a Christian, those works come naturally from Christ living in us. And that's gigantic difference. It's the difference of being in bondage to a Christian life or being set free in Jesus. It's that big of a difference. So when, when we're looking at these scriptures, another great verse, the first one was Philippians 1.6. The second one is 1 Thessalonians 5.23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. So sometimes when we talk about moving from a place of being a beginning Christian to the fullness of the stature of Christ, some people call that a process of sanctification. And they'll say, well, you're going from this stage and you're being sanctified to the fullness of Christ. And that's an okay term. That's a fine term. And this is what he prays here. He says, I pray that God would sanctify you entirely, your spirit, your soul, and your body, and which is a great verse, and to be without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus. But verse 24 is so important. Faithful is he, that's Jesus, who called you, and he will bring it to pass. So who brings it to pass? The Lord brings it to pass. What is our work? Our work is to be abiding in the Lord. Our work is to be taking every part of our life and handing it to the Lord. Taking the worries, the plans, the anxieties, the whole thing and handing it to the Lord. And then as the Lord stirs within us, we're about works that glorify Him rather than glorify us. But the Bible says that He will sanctify us fully. Not we will sanctify us, He will sanctify us. And then Hebrews 12, 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand on the throne of God. Jesus is both the author of faith 
and the perfecter or the finisher of faith. Now, this is not commonly taught. Most people go, okay, well, you've become a Christian. Surely you've met the Lord. He's given you faith to become a Christian. And now, surely, you need to grow your faith. Here are 17 steps to grow your faith. And once you finish those 17, we have the 21-step follow-up. And if you do all those things, you'll grow your faith. I'm not trying to make a light of that. There are certain things that can really help. But the Bible says that Jesus authors your faith and that Jesus perfects your faith. And that the work of the believer is to abide in Jesus so that Jesus can be authoring and perfecting your faith. And sometimes you'll hear the enemy just come in and he'll, he'll try to get Jesus. You're always, he's always trying to get Jesus pushed to the side. So you'll hear people talk and they'll say, well, I'm in the middle of my faith walk. And that just doesn't ring right. Well, it's not your faith walk, it's your faith in Jesus walk. But see, the enemy tries to get Jesus out of it. And other people say, well, I've been taking six courses on advanced discipleship. Advanced discipleship in Jesus. Do you see how they take Jesus out of it? And that's the way it is. Well, I'm doing da-da-da-da, but Jesus isn't a part of it. If you go two to three minutes and you leave Jesus out of something God's doing, you need to recheck it. Because, see, he is preeminent. He is above all things, and he is the king of kings. And God made everything to work through Jesus. He, he's more important. We're not going to go to heaven and worship Jesus from 8 to 12 and then break out into committees to further our understanding of the nature of things. It is not going to happen that way. When we go, it says that everybody takes their crowns, which is everything that's about you, and lays them down at his feet, and they glorify him because he's more wonderful than we think. So he says here that Jesus is the perfecter of our faith. So if we're abiding in him, he grows our faith. How do you grow faith? That's not my job. It's up to him. It's not my how. Jesus does the how. And then he says um, three really good verses. In 1 Corinthians 3, 6, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. And that's true in our life. Pastor Miguel will get up and share something. Bob will share something. Helen will share something. All these people will share something. God, Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God causes the growth. And he does that, Hope. He causes the growth. You say, well, how does he do that? Well, I'd love to take you into the science. We still don't understand how plants grow. We understand some. But there are key things that we don't know how it happens. We are at a loss on some steps on photosynthesis. Still, we haven't got it. But God causes the growth. And then in Colossians 2.19, and this is a, one not quoted too often, now it's very important. And he's talking and he says that these people are not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God a growth which is from God. Colossians 2.19 says Jesus is the head of the body, and that as we, it says that we, as we are being supplied and held together by joint and ligaments to the head of the body, we grow with a growth that comes from God. A growth that comes from God. Growth is from God, so God gets the glory for growth. And then finally, um, you know, when he, when he talks in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, 
are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. The Lord is the one who transforms us from one degree of glory to another. He is in charge of the growth. So we're going to have to kind of finish up because we've run out of time, but this is what leads us in to Colossians 1.27. And in Colossians 1.27, it's a, a tremendous thing that Paul is trying to describe, and I, I challenge you to read Colossians 1. Colossians, as a matter of fact, the pastor is teaching, teaching a course on Colossians now. Colossians is a tremendous book. But the first chapter is just, it got packed full of stuff. And he's leading these people all the way up, and he says, I want you to understand this thing in Colossians 1.27, that God willed to make to known to us the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And he says, this is a mystery. There's a glory of this mystery. And hope there's a riches of glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And he says, and this is what the mystery is, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And it is a mystery. It isn't something that we can just say, oh yeah, I bought uh, six pounds of Christ and ate it and mixed it with my salad and it works really well. No, no, no. That's not Christ in you. Christ in you, who has merged together with you to form a new creation, moving in ways we don't understand, is our hope of glory. Christ in you. Not Christ in you plus something else. Christ in you. The fullness of God in you is the hope of glory. And it's a mystery. And it's a glorious mystery. And it's a richly glorious mystery. And he says, I want you to understand it. And it's not easy to just grab hold of in 10 minutes. We go, well, this is just bigger and better. Every time we talk about it, it's more and more marvelous. Yes, that's exactly right. The richness of it is tremendous. But most of the things the enemy does, and this is what I want to close on, is that the enemy turns and says, all of Christian growth is up to the activities of things you can put together to make you a better person. And he's saying, you started in the Spirit, are you now going to perfect yourself in the flesh? Because that's exactly what the enemy is saying to do. He's saying, go perfect yourself in the flesh. He doesn't say that. He just says, you need to be a good person to show you're a Christian. And Jesus said, I want to let you know, just as sure as I'm the one who completely saved you, I am the one who completely transforms you into my image. And that's why the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, Jesus was made unto us sanctification. Jesus himself is our sanctification. That is tremendously good news. That is just tremendously good news. He was made unto us sanctification. That verse, again, one of my highlight verses, 1 Corinthians 1.30, because it says he was made unto a sanctification, redemption, righteousness, excuse me, it's, the first one is wisdom. Wisdom, redemption, sanctification, and righteousness. Jesus was made those things. He was made wisdom. He was made redemption. He was made sanctification. He was made righteousness. And those are the four things that we work on in the flesh. We want to have wisdom in the flesh. We want to have redemption in the flesh. We want to be sanctified in the flesh. And we want to have righteousness in the flesh. And Jesus is coming and saying, I'm all for those things. 
I'll reveal myself to you that way. But I want you to know I am those things. How can you start in the Spirit and now think you can perfect yourself in the flesh? Galatians 3, 2, and 3. Absolutely incredible verse. So God came to bring enormous freedom, enormous blessing, and enormous growth so that we can do what we could never do. Start from where we are and become to the fullness of the stature of Christ. Most Christians absolutely do not believe they'll ever be at the fullness of the stature of Christ. But God's arm is not shortened, and what he said he'll do, he will do. If we were critiquing Jesus' sermon, just as soon as Jesus said, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, how would we critique that sermon? Can you see us getting together at the end saying, well, what were the strengths and weaknesses of what Jesus had to say today? Somebody would immediately raise their hand and say, if you're going to give unrealistic aspirations to people, you need to clearly qualify that they're not going to reach this, but they need to look towards it. Do you see what we would say to Jesus? That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And my first answer to that is, I can't do that. And Jesus' answer is, you never could do that. I'm going to do it. I want you to put yourself in my hands. I'm the potter. I'll make you, but you put yourself in my hands and we'll go there. It will be by my power, so I receive the glory. Do you see the message there, the gospel there? This is the tremendous change that Jesus makes. But we would critique Jesus' sermon and say, you just told people things they'll never reach. They're going to get discouraged. Someone's going to come back the next week going, I wasn't perfect this week, so God's mad at me. You shouldn't say things like that in your sermon. This is what we do because we operate in the natural. But God, so great is God, he's trying to do things our natural mind haven't thought of yet. So the scripture says the eye is not seen, the ear is not heard, it is not entered into the mind of man, the very things God has prepared for them that love him. We haven't perceived it. I'm going to stop there. We'll pick up on this again in a couple of weeks. But I just want to encourage each one of us not to tell God what he can and cannot do. Because in every stage of our life, Bob, what we find out is he does more than we could ask or think. And just like Chibu was, parent, was, was sharing, let's come before his presence and recognize we're before the presence of the Almighty and that all things are possible to him, specifically things which are impossible with men. Let's bow our heads. Father, you are the great one. There is no one like you. We do not give you glory the way we should. We constantly look down to the frailty of the human condition and set low expectations so we don't disappoint ourselves. Lord Jesus, I'm asking that you open up in our heart such a vision of you that we are drawn to you deeper and deeper, much more than we are now, that we love you more and more, much more than we do now. For only you can do these things. Help us to do our work. Help us to abide in you. Help us to take every part of our life and say yes to Jesus, not I'm holding it back. I ask now that you touch this city, that you touch this state, this nation, and this world, and let the strength of the arm of your hand be seen and the glory that surrounds you be revealed. Father, that many, many, many would come to you Lord, and find salvation and find fullness of life.
In Jesus' precious name, amen.